The passage today is John 15, 18 to 16, 4. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is doing an offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Good to see everyone this morning. Let's, let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that it is another day that you have made, as each day is, Lord. And thank you that you've brought us here this morning to worship you, to fellowship with each other, to hear your word. We pray that you would help us to grow with uh, whatever we hear here this morning. And may my words be of you. And Lord, anything that is not of you, may it be forgotten. And Lord Jesus, pray that you would move by your spirit and Grow us more this week from what is said here this morning. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, yeah, so basically, um, Marvin had taken the month of August off, and he asked a few people to preach. And we tend to give him a date or two that will work, and we agree on a date, and then he gives us the passage, so we don't really know the passage ahead of time. Um, and toward the, I told him toward the end of August would work for me to preach. Um, my anniversary was last weekend, so I told him it couldn't really work last weekend, couldn't work next weekend. Um, I probably would have preferred last weekend's passage, um, John 15. Um, and that was actually the passage that was Pastor Doug preached on at our wedding six years ago. Um, but I'm grateful that God works in different ways, because I've learned a lot from this particular passage and so I think we can all learn a lot from it here this morning. So let's, let's dive into it. 
The passage we are looking at today was likely a very sobering one, as we already know, for the disciples to hear. And it should be a very sobering one for us as well. The disciples at the time didn't fully understand what all of Jesus' words meant while he was saying these things to them before he died. But later they would have understood. Today we have the benefit of looking back and we can see how these words of Jesus were crucially important for the disciples who were with him at the time and for every disciple of Jesus since. As we know, the Gospel of John is meant for readers and hearers to understand who Jesus is and to believe in him. John, the author, has set it up to point to Jesus as the Son of God who came to save sinners. And he chooses to include specific situations and miracles or signs and conversations to help guide us to that conclusion of who Jesus is. We don't get a sequential chronological picture of his life and ministry like we do from the other Gospels, but we do get an understanding of who he is on an intimate level, especially in some of the conversations he had, like this one. So Jesus and his disciples had just finished supper in the upper room, as we've been learning about over the past few weeks, where after the meal, Jesus had washed the disciples' feet as a picture of how he would soon serve them in the ultimate way and die on the cross to wash away their sins. Then he talked about his coming departure and the coming of the Holy Spirit to be their helper. Then they left the upper room to move toward the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is where we find the context for this conversation. It's not long before Jesus is going to be arrested and put to death. So he's telling them some really important things to prepare them for the future. The disciples were probably going through a range of emotions at this time. Jesus was telling them things they didn't really understand. And this was all just after Judas had left to do his errand, which probably threw them for a bit of a loop. The circumstances around Jesus' life were all getting very tense, and they knew he was on the bad side of very powerful people. But they were probably still holding out hope that he would somehow overthrow the corruption around them and rescue the nation of Israel. Jesus just got through telling them about what their relationship with him should look like and also what their relationship with each other should look like. Now he tells them what their relationship with the world is going to look like. And generally, it's not going to be good. It's probably quite deflating, given that they would have expected a better future than that with the conquering Messiah. But this is a key sequence we see, where Jesus starts by describing their relationship with him, which involves abiding in him and his love and obeying him, their relationships with fellow believers, which is loving one another, before talking about their relationship to the world. This is really important to keep in mind as we look through this passage. Another thing to keep in mind is that John sets this, teach, this teaching section of abiding in Jesus, loving one another, and enduring the hatred of the world, which is John 15 and the first part of John 16. He sandwiches that in the middle of two sections of teaching on the Spirit coming, which is the end of chapter 14 and the start of chapter 16. And all of that is sandwiched in the middle of his talking about his own departure, 
which is the first part of John 14, and the last part of John 16. So this is a block of three chapters that we could refer to as his final teaching, and it's all sandwiched between his being with his disciples in chapter 13 and being with his father in chapter 17 in his prayer. This is a flow of five chapters that points us in the direction of his coming crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, where he is leaving the disciples and going back to the Father, but not without preparing them for the future and promising them the help they'll need. So after telling them to love one another, Jesus wastes no time describing how the world will respond to his disciples. Verse 18 starts, If the world hates you, this is not Jesus speculating that maybe the world will hate them. No, he's assuming the world will hate them. This is very clear in verse 19 as well. There are three good questions we can ask ourselves here. Question one, what is the world that Jesus is referring to? Question two, why would the world hate the disciples? And the difficult follow-up question is then, question three, why or does this apply to all disciples of Jesus, as in those who have trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and choose to follow him? To answer the first question, the world is the whole of humanity that don't believe in God's saving grace. It's those who don't belong to him by faith and who aren't considered his people. This group of people make up the world that Jesus is talking about. Jesus himself points to the answer to the second, second question in verse 19. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates the disciples because they're associated with Jesus. And we know from verse 18 that the world hated Jesus first. The disciples were part of the world at one point, but Jesus chose them out of the world. Now they belong to him and his kingdom. The world is either consciously or subconsciously rebelling against God, and this has been the case ever since Adam and Eve committed the first sin. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he has chosen people out of this rebellion against God to belong to him. Wouldn't it make sense then that those who hate God would also hate Jesus and his followers? There are other reasons for the world to hate Jesus' followers stemming from this. The world chooses to love darkness instead of light. Jesus is the light. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been actively calling out the sin and darkness of the world, primarily of those who knew the scriptures best, which is worrying when you think about it. Those in the dark don't like their sin and dark deeds to be exposed by the light, Jesus. Some in the dark are outwardly dark and sinful, and it's obvious, but many in the dark look like good people on the outside, but are inwardly dark and sinful. The tragic twistedness of the world is shown in the fact that they crucified Jesus, who lived the one perfect life the world has ever had. As Jesus is the light who exposes this darkness, his disciples will also be agents of light, exposing darkness. 
This also brings on the hatred of the world. The world will feel ugly around the disciples. The crazy thing is that the disciples will not have to do anything wrong to be hated. They simply have to be disciples, as in they will be one with Jesus, they will obey Jesus, they will love each other and the people around them. They will proclaim Jesus, and they will be changed to look more and more like Jesus, living the lives they were always meant to live. The degree of hatred that the world has shown toward the disciples would seem to be an assurance that the disciples, to the disciples, that they're on the right path. The greater the hatred of the world, the more the disciples likely look like Christ. All of this clearly answers question three. Yes, this does apply to all disciples of Jesus, simply because we have been chosen by Jesus out of a dark and warped world. The more we abide in Christ and look like him, the more likely we are to incur on ourselves the hatred of the world. But a joy to be had in the midst of all this is that Christ himself chose us out of the world, out of our rebellion to him. The passage that we're dealing with today holds a heavy message, but there is deep hope within it. And that's something we can hold on to. In verse 20, Jesus uses the principle of servants being subordinate to masters and applies it to show the disciples that they will most certainly suffer persecution. With this logic, why would we ever expect that disciples of Jesus will somehow have it easy? We're kind of missing the point if we assume that being a Christian means a more prosperous and easier life. The disciples he was talking to at the time certainly experienced persecution after Jesus left and the Holy Spirit came. We have historical evidence that points to the fact that many of the first followers of Jesus had been executed in terrible ways. But why were they executed? It was because they were on fire for Christ. They were talking the talk and proclaiming his name, and they were walking the walk and living like they belonged to him and would even die for him. They didn't hide their light, and, but let it shine for all to see. We don't need to seek out suffering to validate that we're true Christians, but two reasonable questions to ask ourselves are, if I'm not experienced persecution, or if I don't feel any opposition based on my, based on in my life based on following Jesus, what does that say about my level of commitment to him and his mission? Another question is, am I ready to die for Jesus? And if not, why not? Again, there is eternal hope in all of this. Jesus stressed in last week's passage the importance of abiding in him and his love and obeying him and learning to love others who are his as well. I believe that as we do these things and grow in these things, we will, we will, as a body, by God's grace, become more like Christ, and the world will take notice. The unbelieving world in its darkness will not feel threatened by solo Christians with minimal commitment to Jesus. What will really make an impact is when his church, his bride, looks and acts and speaks like him, and the world can choose either to accept or reject him. But... 
we see also from verse 20 that some will hear and obey and become believers. This is God's mission. It's his joy to see his church making an impact for eternity and joining him in his mission to rescue the lost world. In verse 21, we see that the world persecutes Jesus' disciples, not because of who they are, but because of who he is. The great ignorance of the world is that they didn't know God as Father, and so ran from him when he was shown to be, from who he was shown to be in Christ. They rejected Jesus, and in doing so rejected their true Father, their Creator. In Christ, they should have seen the love of the Father and loved him in return, but instead they hated what they saw. This is tragic, and there is no other way to put it. And this should put compassion in our hearts for a lost world. In the next few verses, verses 22 to 25, Jesus expands on this tragedy. And it sounds like he's saying that the world would have been better off if he had never come to them in the first place. We need to think really careful about what this actually means. It means that those who reject Christ are rejecting the ultimate expression of God's love toward humanity in general and to each individual. They are rejecting the clearest revelation of God and his salvation through Jesus' words and his works. They have no excuse. They could choose his light, but they choose their darkness. It's not that they would have been sinless people before meeting Jesus, but the sin of rejecting him make all other sins seem to pale in comparison. Jesus is the hinge on which all this swings. When he came, it's like he became the fence that makes people choose whether they be inside or outside, and many choose to be outside, away from God. To top it all off, Jesus tells that they fulfill their own law in rejecting him. It really is perfectly unreasonable to reject Christ based on his words and his works. But the world which Jesus was talking about managed to do this very thing. In this case, he was somewhat focusing on those who were supposed to know the scriptures best, who cherished and upheld the Old Testament law and lorded it over others with their knowledge. Yet they hated the very one who came to save them, fulfilling multiple Old Testament scriptures. This is extremely condemning, and they would have never saw it coming. The last two verses of chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, are full of a hope that is a great consolation for the disciples and for us as well. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has already talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit in John 14, and he's emphasizing the great importance of this. I'm going to take some notes from last week's sermon that Bert did, and I'm going to give everyone two minutes to think about and discuss with your neighbor, if you have someone around you, how amazing it is that Jesus has sent us his spirit, his very self, to be with us. So take two minutes, and I'll call you all back.
Okay, sorry to cut you off. <laughs> let's um, let's come back together here. It's nice to see all the discussion going on, and I'm sure everybody came up with some amazing things about the Holy Spirit that that you know or that you've experienced yourself. And I just want to let you know that it's if you take what you just talked about and multiply that by about a hundred million times. It's so much better than any of us can imagine that we have the Spirit living in us. The Spirit is one with the Father and the Son. And they together sent Him to continue the ministry of Christ, to be Christ with us and in us, to bring light into the darkness. The Holy Spirit is with us to cover our greatest difficulties and provide the greatest consolations. The Holy Spirit is there to help Christians endure the most difficult of persecutions. And as a side note, I don't want to stand up here and pretend that my life has been full of persecution and tribulation due to my allegiance to Jesus. But I know there are some here who have experienced real persecution and in the midst of it has probably experienced the awesome comfort of the Spirit. These are people we need to listen to and learn from because, as Pastor Marvin often says, it's not going to get any easier being a Christian here in the West. We see in this passage that the Holy Spirit is the faithful witness to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. For example, a disciple is not, is not the most important witness in an unbeliever's life. The Spirit is always the first and foremost witness in someone else's life. Shouldn't this take the pressure off? It means that he will proclaim Jesus to that person, and he will use his disciples to do the same, even in their weakness and inconsistency and lack of compassion. On a broader scale, in the church's faithfulness to the truth, in the face of the lie of sin and death, and in the church's humiliation and tribulation at the hands of the world, the Spirit witnesses to Jesus. Ultimately, we each need to grow in our witness at the guidance of the Spirit. He is working and speaking in ways we often can't understand. He has the power to change the heart of anyone who is in rebellion against God. He works against the forces of evil in this world by regenerating lost sinners and binding them to Christ. Let's not lose sight of the fact that though these words of Jesus apply to us and our time, Jesus is speaking here to those first few dis disciples about the great calling they had to be his first witnesses and to set the world ablaze with the truth of God's love and saving grace. They had this privilege because they were with him from the beginning, and he chose them first. I'm sure they would have been very grateful for the help of the Spirit. <clears throat> 
And look, looking at the last few verses of the passage, chapter 16, verses 1 to 4, Jesus essentially tells them that he's eliminating the surprise factor for them. They will have no reason to be surprised when they endure hardship for the name of Jesus. They will suffer public and social humiliation, as in being kicked out of the synagogue, which was a major social structure for many of them. They will also suffer torture and death, often at the hands of people who think they are doing it in God's name, though in reality they are hostile to him. As I said before, we have evidence pointing to the fact that many of the early disciples suffered terrible torture and execution for proclaiming Jesus as Lord. But it did not stop then and continues today. Some persecutors have even complained that it is a sacrifice to God. But the irony is, the death of a disciple who faithfully endures persecution to the end is a sweet aroma to God. Think about that for a second. Jesus is telling the disciples these things so they will not be caught off guard more and more likely to throw in the towel and give up. The disciples' greatest threat is not death, but turning away from Christ. It is a small but significant grace that Jesus prepares them for these difficulties ahead of time. There is no way to escape tribulation and hardship as a follower of Christ. But, and we should not live our lives trying to escape it. But in suffering for Christ, we will one day experience his glory. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 17 to 18. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The beautiful thing in all of this is that when we suffer for Christ, he suffers with us. He is persecuted with us. Do, do any of the kids remember when Jesus visited Saul on the road to Damascus? Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? What did he say? Yeah, he said, why are you persecuting me? His, his followers were being persecuted, but he took that on himself as if he was being persecuted. Jesus suffers with us because we are one with him. He doesn't stand in heaven waiting impatiently for us to be done suffering so we can join him in his glory. Suffering is the path to glory. There can be no other way. It's all over the Bible, ultimately shown in Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and glorification. Where suffering is, that's where Jesus is. Just a few last things in closing. This is about the time yesterday when when my wife Jo fell asleep when I was reading this to her. Uh, so just stay with me just for a few more minutes. <laughs> Jesus talks about the hour and the world's hour and how that will signal the onset of persecution. But this hour is divinely appointed in that it corresponds to the timing of Jesus' own death and resurrection. The hour of evil, of the, the hour of the evil of the world being set loose on Christians corresponds to the hourglass being turned upside down 
anticipating the coming destruction of the devil, his demons, and the world when the sand runs out. It may often look like the world is winning, but it's playing on borrowed time. It will not last forever. Jesus has won the victory, and he will come back to claim his rightful throne one day and bring his followers with him. But we are in the in-between time, where he is in the process of making all things new. There are bound to be hardships when the separation between good and evil grows, but we are not alone. We have the Spirit helping us to remain steadfast and faithful as witnesses to Jesus. As we walk with Jesus and grow in him, we will be more likely, like him, and there will be more opportunities to witness. But with these opportunities come pushback. That's why it's so important to think about witnessing in the context of a loving church community. Yes, there are some who have specific callings to witness individually in specific situations. And we all have opportunities in our own personal lives to witness individually. But we were, we were never meant to win the world on our own, but rather to make an impact as part of the church. That's how the world will know who Jesus is, by the love we have for one another. As I said toward the beginning, Jesus emphasizes in John 15 our relationship with him, our relationships with each other, and our relationship with the world. The first two, relationship with Jesus and with each other, are vital for us to be effective and enduring in the third, which is our relationship to the world. I found when I was taking an initial look at this passage that apart from relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there are three relationships that seem to stand out within this passage. One is Jesus' relationship with his disciples. Another is Jesus' relationship with the world. And the third is our relationship with the world. The primary ones that, one that seems to be mentioned most often is Jesus' relationship with his disciples. And often, as we know in the Bible, when we see certain phrases or themes re repeated, that's what we need to focus on. So, a strong relationship with Christ is a good place to start. Yet, it's not based on our efforts, rather on his grace and relying on the Spirit to help us. And building strong relationships within the church on his mission goes hand in hand with this. Who knows what God can use a church for when its members are full of the Spirit, full of love for God and each other, and on mission together for Christ as the head? Let's be in the habit, let's together be in the habit of talking and praying about what this could mean for us at First Congregational. How can we be full of the Spirit? of love, and full of love for God and each other? And how can we be on Christ's mission together as a united church? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words in this passage. Thank you that you can teach us many things things that are for our good, things that are for the buildup of your church, things to warn us, things to guard us, things to prepare us. And Lord, we pray that we would have an overall greater sense of your love for us and a greater sense of your spirit with us and that we would be united as a church to do your mission 
which is making disciples of all the nations. And we pray that you would show us in the coming weeks and months and years how we can do that more and more. Fill us with your spirit. Thank you for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen.